Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This week, Jules and I sit down and discuss the shootings in America, boys and men, remote work, and independent politics, all of that this week on Forward. Welcome back. It's Andrew and Jules. You thought that I had disappeared, but I am here. Jules and I were just having a conversation about reading books. I'm developing quite a book collection. I don't know if you all have noticed, but I interview authors a lot, and I buy their books, and I buy a hard copy of the book. So it turns out that boys and girls read fiction, but then after you get to adulthood, apparently men consume much less fiction. We kind of switch to nonfiction, yep. whereas women... Still, you read both fiction and nonfiction, so I guess this means that women have broader reading tastes. Um, but I was reflecting on the fact that when I was young, I used to read science fiction and fantasy novels like candy. Like, I just, you know, would inhale them. And then now I read tons and tons of nonfiction. Uh, so I was just talking to Zach, who's also here. We could get Zach in as our third, <laughs> a third. member of the tripod. And Zach was like, yeah, that, that tracks. That's his experience, too. So I don't know what that says about men and women, but uh, apparently our, our reading tastes diverge at a certain point. I think it's like... For example, science fiction, yeah, everyone kind of taps into that when they're younger, it's more so. And then men kind of tap out of that genre as they grow older. And I think it's more so like these things are very maybe imaginative and maybe like romanticizing different things of life. And I think girls, especially like in their adulthood, still tend to flock to that. And then guys, yeah, end up going the, like you're saying, nonfiction route of kind of just hard facts and kind of lose that imaginative and create, create <laughs> yeah, what does that say about yeah us? like this creative we, like, side lose of our imaginations. it's like one of these like dystopian <laughs> novels uh yeah i took a pop culture in the u.s class in college and uh we were assigned romance novels mm. they said a box of romance novels had grab one and so i read it and it was great <laughs> so now i understand <laughs> romance novels as a form because i read one and uh you know it was like escapist fantasy it was good fun well, it's also interesting that, that girls end up going to like those uh, like murder podcasts a lot of the times. Like it's known that those types of podcasts are very female dominated in terms of the audience. And like, also, what does that say? Because like that's not necessarily fiction, but it is like this storytelling of like these extremes. Almost. True crime. Yeah, yeah it's yes, true. true crime is the word. Yeah, yeah I, I did know that women consume true crime podcasts at a much higher level. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating, too. And I think it's more so maybe just kind of internalizing almost like this fear that women are or maybe it's up. maybe it's relationships because there is always a drama involved with the true crime stuff right yeah i remember growing up i watched a lot of like criminal minds and everything like that and found that stuff fascinating and like especially when you're growing up like you do very much internalize those storylines i remember like i'd walk past a window at night and i'd be like oh my god like i would think something's gonna like pop out all the time but. yes <laughs> you know I, I i do think that the majority of the audience of this podcast is is men. <laughs> hey guys, <laughs> I, I, I think that checks out numerically. Mm -hmm. This week, I feel like so many things came up that really reminded me of the pages of the War on Normal People, as yeah. well as Forward. Just so many different tendencies and um, just yeah, cultural situations that you talked about on the pages of these books. Not that you were necessarily predicting them, but more so noticing the emergence of them. And I think it's important to talk about, yeah, as we talk about the relationship with men and different things was 
these different shootings that happened yes. over the past weekend. Two of them were considered like mass shootings. One of them was much bigger. So there was on Sunday, it was a church in California. Yep. Um, I think it was like two killed, five injured in Milwaukee when the Bucks game was happening. There were three different shootings. One of those shootings was responsible for 17 injured. And then the biggest one that the media had really ran with as well was the Buffalo, Buffalo New York Terrible. one, which was the yep. first of these three over the weekend. And that dealt with an 18-year-old male that it, there was no doubt that it was racially motivated because he detailed um, his plan in a manifesto. Um, Ten killed, three wounded. Live streamed on Twitch, just a pure Awful. evil situation. Yeah. Pure evil. Um, you can't, like, <laughs> I w don't seek this out. I don't believe so. I don't even think you can really access the manifesto on social media. Um, Good. Yeah. So what were your initial thoughts when seeing this news? Because, you know, you're very passionate about this boys and men conversation. And I would just love to hear your take on that. Yeah, it, it's heartbreaking. You think about people shopping and living their lives and then ha having this evil, lunatic yeah. teenager come and take so many lives brutally and senselessly. Uh, so we're, we're at a point in American life and it's tar it's super dark because we all are at this point where you see there's news about a shooting and then you ask, okay, what kind of shooting is it? Yeah. Uh, like, like what's the nature of the shooter, the nature of the victims? And a lot of that hinges on race. Now in the Buffalo shooting, crystal clear, it's hate crime, yep. uh, white supremacist manifesto, really disgusting. I can't imagine victimizing that neighborhood in Buffalo and, and seeing those people as somehow your enemy. I mean, the, the entire thing is beyond dark. It, it, it truly is evil. The other shootings, I, I, I'll say one of them actually strikes quite close to home where the church shooting in California is of a Taiwanese American community and the gunman was a 68 year old Chinese American who drove from Las Vegas and apparently had been ingesting propaganda about yep. Taiwan and got angry enough where he drove across. Very targeted, yeah. Yeah, state lines is targeted. Milwaukee shootings, uh, it, it struck me from the news accounts I read that it, it seemed like there was some kind of like gang violence against probably members of another gang. Yeah, it uh, seemed it, like it seems there was like, like multiple, yeah, guns involved, everything like that. Yeah, so, so when I was looking at these three... And I, I think the attention is rightfully being placed on the Buffalo shooting because one of, one of them is I think it did happen first chronologically, so our attention went to that. But the, the white supremacist shooter is unfortunately becoming a trope or a pattern that people are seizing on and saying, uh, you know, that this is evil and probably not isolated in the sense that it's happened before or will likely happen again. And so people are rightfully trying to figure out how we can stop it. There's been communication, and this is another dark thing about American life, is that people have given up on even talking about gun control as a practical solution because everyone knows that you're not gonna be able to pass it. Uh, and so now we're focusing on the messaging. Yes. And, and, and I do think that there's this online radicalization phenomenon that is dark, consistent, uh, going to get worse, and needs to be focused on to try and put a stop to it. Uh, so I, I'm on board there. And, and you know, because of the fact that like, I have been writing about this stuff since 2018, yeah. like I, I, this, this stuff scared the shit out of me uh, for years. Um, and when I, we had Barbara Walter, the author of the next civil war on, uh, she said there are 400 militias in the US, the 80% of them are alt right, anti government, white nationalist. So th this is the very, very virulent growing strain of hate in American life. And there are these trends, they're all layered on top of each other. So I talk about boys and men and a, a bunch, which I do think it, it's related. Like yeah. you have the, this disintegration. And there's a clear trend of who is <laughs> moving forward with these types of acts. Well, yeah. over 95% of the shooters yeah. are clearly boys or men. Mm -hmm. So that that's the macro context. And, and then the micro is what happens in the brain of this particular uh, 18 year old that radicalizes him. And when it comes to online radical radicalization and, you know, there's conversations of free speech and kind of where is the line of people just critiquing certain mindsets and certain ideologies and such and where it's kind of, do you feel like the line is and where social media companies or other um, organizations need to step in when it comes to this online radicalization? 
I think there are very, very distinct cesspools. I haven't personally, you know, gone digging. Yeah, deep into them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but you, you know what they are. It's like mm -hmm. 4chan, 8chan, and some of these yep. others. And so I, I think that's where you start because I think that that's like the most virulent, dark, evil, hateful material um, that actively tries to radicalize you. I know that's like that shows you certain videos like, you know, there'd be this person literally had a camera on, on his uh, head because he wanted to share it. And so I, I that, that's where you start, like the darkest recesses of the Internet. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The Internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. There was a video of you from a Democratic debate that was resurfacing after this happened. And you said, we have to find ways to turn our boys into healthy, strong men who do not hate, but feel like they have paths forward in today's economy. It's clear that a lot of uh, boys and men today don't necessarily feel that path being there. And, you know, while there is an array of cultural reasoning, an easy yet wrongful route is to typically go at other normal people, um, different groups of normal people. And, and that's what we're seeing. So. What do you see as like the key paths that we need to target first, other than online radicalization? I mean, the, I think the single biggest variable, if you're, and I haven't looked into this particular shooter, but one, one pattern is that they don't have fathers in the household. Yep. Like if, if you have a father in the household, I think the odds of you are heading down certain roads drops a ton. For sure. Now, again, you can't go back in time and give this you know, person a two-parent household. But I, I think that's the single biggest variable. And one of the things I talked about in the war on normal people is that 41, 42% of American children are born to unmarried moms today. Single moms outnumber single fathers, something like four or five to one. So you have a lot of little boys who are brought up, being brought up by single moms. And uh, I think it's tough for that boy to develop positive role models or a sense of masculinity and then if they get drawn to an online rabbit hole that says, like, this is how you discover a sense of importance or identity, it's much easier for them to, to fall prey to that kind of hateful thinking if they don't have someone in the house being like, hey, let's go outside and throw a football around. And, like, dude, you know, you don't have someone in the house that can show you a, a better way, can try and channel your energies positively. I think it's important to also talk about how important a foundation of a family is for these individuals too, not only just kids, but also like being able to provide that to a kid with this new generation that's coming up and is having these issues. What, like, how do you see the importance of family just as an adult and like how important that also was, has been in your life as a parent with someone else in the household? Yeah, so this is one of the, the tough things is when, when I've talked about two parent households and mm -hmm. certain people online are like, hey, you're somehow judging folks who are in different situations yep. and I'm a thousand percent not like I think that single moms are freaking superhuman single parents are superhuman but I feel that because I think parenting is super difficult there are two of us it's still hard I have no idea how anyone would do it 
alone. Yep. Um, and, and so that, that's that been my experience. It actually is one of the things that drove me to run for president. I talked about it in the book because when I became a parent, uh, it nearly uh, tore my mind, soul, heart apart, like so much stress in the household. Uh, I thought that it would be okay and it was not okay. It turns out that our son was autistic and my wife had picked up on that yep. on some instinctive level and I did not because you know like your first time road, parent and yeah. so so our conversations were often around uh, I'll give you an example like Christopher when he woke up he would just start screaming and then when we had another child and he was not screaming as soon as he woke up I was like oh my gosh like you know I kind of thought that maybe there's a difference yeah, yeah. I mean maybe screaming was not the usual <laughs> <laughs> like, like greeting of the day yeah yeah <laughs> understood <laughs> so so Christopher, too, it's like if he were to step from, um, let's say, grass to the concrete, would start freaking out about the texture change, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And so when you're a first time parent and your two year old is like, you know, freaking out about something that seems stupid, you know, you're like, do you think like, oh, this person's like uh, autistic? Like, you know, you don't know better. I mean, I didn't know better. So that, there's just like a lot of. Uh, difficulty and stress and it very much tested um, my marriage where, where like you know Evelyn and I were both very very stressed out and yeah. so you know you're not exactly your best self all the time to your partner so I, I imagined being let's say even a couple maybe you're not married but you're trying to make it work like that stress would break up most of the most yeah. of those couples you imagine trying to bring up that child individually um, so I, I can see all these things falling through the cracks. Um, and I imagined tens of millions of American families in that situation. I imagine the hardship um, and the heartbreak because you want to do your best for your children. And a, a lot of the cases, you're just not going to be able to, to do everything that the child needs, even if you do your best through no fault of your own. It's just the era we're in. And whether you're in a single uh, parent home or a two parent home with the internet now, that's like a whole nother parent involved in terms of like you, a lot of the times you don't know what your kid is exploring on the internet. You know, you can have these d different settings or whatever, but kind of keeping track of that world as well and what your kid is getting into, you know, parents in past decades had a little bit more control of like, totally. yeah, we know, we know who you're hanging out with. We know who your teachers are. Parents don't necessarily know how to navigate. And it's this hard disconnect of two of just like, a digital divide that's not just amongst youth it's a digital divide amongst generations of yeah how kids are using it versus how parents use it like i think i'm more savvy than than, than many, sure. many parents and i would say i don't have a clue of a lot of the stuff that's going on yeah I, I do know that it's worse for teenage girls by the numbers in terms of mental health uh, anxiety and depression we talk about the failure of boys and men but you know i mean everyone has a tough nowadays and in, in large part because of social media and like like we're talking about, you're rightfully passionate about voicing that all the boys are not all right today. And not in a way that's like right off half of society. The men make up 50% of society, but in a way that's like, hey, there's clear and valid reasoning for this. So how do you feel we need to pivot dialogue around the issue so that it's not demeaning or it's not pitying them, but it's also not being dismissive of this issue and that it needs to be tackled? Uh, well, one of the things that uh, I'm passionate about is to say, look, healthy boys and men helps everybody. Yep. Uh, successful, healthy uh, girls and women helps everybody. You know, it's like the, like thinking that there's some kind of strange zero-sum game between the genders is Odd. dumb and ridiculous. And for boys and men, and in particular, um, white boys and men, um, just no one wants to treat them as uh, like people who need help. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that they're always the problem. And... Uh, you know, it's like, uh, I don't think that's fair because I, you know, like the, like life's not peaches and cream for people of any, you know, background, particularly now. So th those are a couple of the, the things that I'd suggest is like, you know, everyone's human. Like we should treat everyone as if they could use a hand if, uh, if they need one. Yeah, I don't, people don't want to feel pitied. I know if I ever feel pitied, whether it's like woman messaging, I'm like, I, I don't want to be put in a box of like this limiting situation of, oh, all men are experiencing this. So it is limiting in today's society. But there was actually a reply to one of your tweets recently about the situation. And Drew Hall said, we should be telling every child heading into puberty that they will have incredibly violent thoughts and emotions that are incredibly powerful and that you don't necessarily 
know how to handle. And after we acknowledge these parts of our brains growing, we can offer healthy outlets and counseling to manage these growing pan pains in our mental health. I think right now, yeah, amongst young boys, that's looked at as something that is a negative and a weak part of their minds. In reality, it's like it's natural and help giving them the tools of how to deal with it, like you said, in a healthy way, in a strong way. In your Washington Post op-ed about this too, I found this line really interesting of male dysfunction tends to take on an air of nihilism and dropping out a society we don't provide many avenues for healthy recovery. And I think right now, like we saw that it was an 18 year old boy that did the incident in Buffalo, New York, but there is a conversation of, of course, just adult men in general. Whether you're first navigating autonomy as a young adult, whether you're newly divorced, whether you just got fired from a job and it's just a new sense of autonomy, the frustration of this time, it makes it easier to induce anger. So what do you see as avenues for healthy recovery for adult men? Well, one of the stats in the War on Normal People that stuck with me is that unemployed men volunteer in their community less than employed men, even though you have much more time on your hands. Hmm. And it's because you don't feel valuable. And so you don't think, oh, I don't have a job. Like, you know, maybe I'll go go to the uh, youth center or, or the church or, or whatnot and lend a hand. Like, you just think, like, oh, I'm going to keep to myself. Mm-hmm. I think that's very normal for men. And so the, the question is, how can you make people feel valued, have them feel like that they can plug in in a way that um, that contributes and, and do it in a way that is not shameful, as you're describing. It's like it's actually like prized and important. And I think in that Washington Post op-ed, I talk about like men need to be valued or need to be needed or something like that. So in, in an ideal world, you'd have someone call that guy and say, hey, I need a hand on something. And mm-hmm. then you'd be like, okay, and, and you know, what is that project? It, it's it's a bit like the end of Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Yes, It's I like have. my favorite movie. I had to watch time. it in so psychology a, class in high school. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, when at the end, you know, he goes to Morgan Freeman's character, it's like, hey, I could use a hand with mm-hmm. this. Like everyone just wants to get that call saying, I could use a hand with this. Um, the question is who's making that call? And then what are the projects that someone needs help with, it could be volunteering uh, in a certain capacity. Right now, one of the things that also is tied up with male value is some kind of uh, income or money. Um, and so if, if you get a call saying, hey, I, like, uh, I need you to help me with something and it doesn't pay, then you feel like you can only do it for a short period of time and then you need to find something that does pay. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Those points actually bring up an interesting conversation about the future of work, because whenever I had like restaurant jobs or whenever I had, you know, was working at a gym, I never necessarily felt this specific feeling I had until a corporate job where you're, you know, very stuck into these time constraints and you're very just in a salaried job more so of, oh, I I wish I could just have all the time in the world. And with all that time, I would do this. And then I got into a situation where I was more self-employed and you kind of have a more open schedule where it's like, yeah, like you are in control of this. But I did find it almost like, yeah, debilitating of like, you think you're going to do so much with all of this open time. But I found it became so important for me to have these structures were actually vital 
But if you would have right out of college told me that, I'd be like, no, like if I had all the time in the world, I would do this long list of things. And it is interesting because I think a lot of kids feel like this right now, especially college graduates that are having these first full time jobs. Yeah, I mean, I, I just use my own experience where I tried to start a company in my mid twenties, totally mm-hmm. flopped. Um, but but it, <laughs> it was it was miserable, in part because I didn't have an office, so I was working ineffectively and futilely mm-hmm. from home in isolated fashion. Uh, and I said to myself, like, I'm not going to do that again. You know, it's like I I at a minimum have to have a, some have some place to go. And then the next number of jobs I had were these startups, and I, I was in the office and I did learn a few things. And then when I became head of my own company, I made it a point to show up and be diligent and hmm. uh, and I, I tried to look out for people and be a good manager and take people out to lunch and things like that. And you know, it's like the that that sort of thing was important to me. The the tough part, Jules, is that. I think 80% of people, you give them a choice, they're not going to want to go to the office because why would you, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> but the the question is, what would you have gotten out of being in an office three or four days a week? You know, you might think, oh, this commute sucks or, you know, office culture is annoying. But that there are some virtues to it. And so if a young person's in, in a situation where you're not getting that, uh, you know, I'd like to see them get that in other ways if it's possible. So the first thing that came to mind, and this might not be useful, but so that there's like a West Point uh, model of leadership training where they put cadets in charge of someone in the class below them, and they also have them report to someone in the class above them. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. you have different leadership experiences both up and down mm-hmm. all the time. And I think that's very useful, and it can be in any context. So I'm imagining that if you aren't participating in an office environment, maybe you join a rock climbing gym or like some activity where there's like a development path and there are people better than you. Maybe you're better than some other people. I think that kind of context is super helpful. And and thinking of the future of work and how our relationships with work are going to change, people are saying, you know, whether it's in 2050, humans might not even have to necessarily do a lot of the work that we do today of 2040 even. How do you feel like what are the types of things that can be in place for people's structure? Do you ever think about that? I, I do think about it a fair amount. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's like, so some of the ideas I, I have around this are mm-hmm. that, so right now, most of all of us work because we need uh, an income, we yeah. need to survive, et cetera, et cetera. As you all know, I mean, I, I ran for president on this idea that AI is going to do a lot of those jobs. Yeah, and, so you definitely I'm, thought about it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to suggest that the work from home Mm-hmm. trend is going to accelerate the automation of a lot of jobs because yep. <laughs> like you know you're halfway there you're like a disembodied it loses avatar the humanity of it of not yeah seeing people in person yeah yeah so the the question is what's the transition and, and this is one reason why and one of the things people said to me all the time it's like oh you know jobs aren't all about money and i was like i totally agree you know like like we should be looking to develop new forms of community structure purpose uh, development, fulfillment. Uh, and if it's not an office, which I, I'm cool with, and like, you know, it's like, then what is it going to be? Yep. And that is the major gap in American life right now. Um, I interviewed Arthur Brooks, the author, a while ago, and he talked about humans as being worshipful. And organized religion is fading as a central component in people's lives and community. And it's being replaced by media and politics. And he said that the TV networks, for example, are media tribes or cults or whatever you want to call them, and that the anchors are like the new idols. Hmm. Uh, it was an interesting argument. And you can take it, you know, not as far or as far as you want, but that there is certainly a void in American life. The job has been the foundation of it for a long time, not just in terms of our incomes, but also our social life. I remember when I started a job, and I was only a, law, a lawyer for five months, but like you showed up and there were peers and maybe, you know, you might be attracted to someone mm-hmm. you work with. Like there might be, like, like your job could be like 80% of your life. Yeah. Um, I, in politics, it tends to be uh, 100% because, you know, you're just doing it and you're traveling and if someone's not with you on the campaign then you don't have time for them, that sort of thing. That void, in my opinion, will be filled by, by something um, we don't like. Uh, if we don't fill it with something positive. Um, now, what does that positive version look like? You know, it, it could be um, people starting new kinds of 
community orgs or associations. Um, I, I'm, I interviewed a woman who's going to come out the podcast soon. I started a hybrid newsletter event group in Seattle called the Evergrey. Uh, you know, I, I think that there, there is a real need. But right now, the, the problem is that the economics aren't there in most of these instances. It's, you know, I mean, this is one of the biggest things I, I think about, though. Yeah. Is that, like, how do you fill this void? Me and my friends the other week were actually talking about this. Just the conversation about, like, we missed misorganized sports. And on the way, as an adult, you know, you can go play pickup games and all this stuff. Like, I, I played volleyball growing up, but there isn't that, like, camaraderie around practices, which I find, like, the most fun part. I'm like, if in the future that could become a normal for situation for adults, because it's always sad at the end of high school when... Yeah, like that feels like it's a done chapter for you. Um, totally. Yeah, I, feel I, like I, I would think love that. For there are a couple of things that formed um, those experiences. Um, one of them is uh, summer camp. Mm -hmm. And I think we could all use some more camp in our lives. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and when there's been like an adult version of camp, sort of cheesy, but also really, <laughs> yeah. really infectious and fun and important. The, the next thing would be some kind of organized sports. Mm -hmm. During my 20s and 30s, I played a weekly game of basketball with the same 15 guys yep and it was the high point of my week no matter what else happened that week could be like you know i'm just gonna go to that gym and play basketball and what's funny is i played with those guys for years i have no idea what any of them did for a living yeah it's just like this cool relationship of it's it's surface level but not in a bad way like it's just like all positive yeah you might get into some arguments but it's it's just like all, so all positive love. yeah <laughs> and so and so in my case too it was guys so it was so bro-y. Mm -hmm. You just show up and be like, sup, sup, yeah, you know, da-da-da, just do yeah. your thing. And it, you know, just made everything better. You often make the case that many of our problems, though seemingly like beast on their own, are actually very interconnected. Everything that we were just talking about is somehow interconnected when we're yeah. talking about boys and men. It, can lead into education it does lead into work a lot of the times so i would pinpoint polarization right now as a clear initial push in a greater domino effect i feel like you feel the same though you can add more and like what do you classify as the main drivers of polarization right now well you know i go into it in my book and yeah. just right now polarization is profitable polarization um is politically wise polarization is the winning strategy so you're going to expect more of it because you know, everyone wins on it. Yep. You know, I tend to think about the numbers behind it. I mean, you have multiple billion dollar media organizations that separate us into ideological camps and give us what we want and get us angry at the other side. Then you have trillion dollar social media companies pouring gasoline on the whole thing. So this is going to get worse and worse and not better. The, the question is, can we break out of it in time? I think we've got a chance at it happily um, because the current party system is so decrepit Mm -hmm. and uh, unrepresentative but it, you know it's a very tall order it's a challenging task well this week i saw two tweets that i was happy to see one, whether you like either of these guys or not one was from tim urban and another was from elon musk in response to him so tim urban did a five-part thread i'll read the first two because i think they're very fascinating to this conversation and i agree so it was some mantras for political thinking, truth is hard, humility is hard, independent thinking is hard, resisting tribalism is hard. Over and over, you will forget that these things are hard, and that's probably when you'll fail at them. And like you're saying, we see like people are winning through playing into polarization, so it feels like, yeah, this big win. To me, it's like an easy route, and it's kind of weak to play into that. But anyway, part two of the thread, um, he goes, bullies come in many forms, stand up to bullies and don't be a bully. Political parties are big, lame corporations. They're not worth your identity. Angels and demons are a delusion. Everyone is flawed and everyone is complicated. Courage is criticizing your in-group. I really And there's uh, three other tweets in that thread, but those two specifically regarding independent politics, I found perfect. Perfectly stated. Perfectly stated. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And then Elon replied and he said, the whole notion of being left wing or right wing is silly. Almost no one initially agrees with the semi-random collection of policies associated with each wing. They only support those policies after they join the left or right mind tribe. So, yeah, a lot of people, whether they are, you know, feel like they are 100% on to one side, couldn't name all of the policies under a party. It is genuinely just a tribe and an energy around something that you flock to in every situation. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, yet it's very, very human. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you buy that humans are naturally 
tribal creatures, which we are. Yeah. Uh, and then there are all these social rewards around joining particular tribes. One of the best books around this is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Have you read that book? I haven't, but you interviewed him. I did. Yeah. And so th th this book explains so much to me and many, many other people. He identified six universal human values that cross every culture, uh, every society. Mm -hmm. Caring, fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Hmm. And he observed, and this is where it gets fascinating, okay. is that liberals home in on the first two values, caring and fairness. Hmm. And conservatives home in on the last three, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Hmm. So yeah. we have different people who are just much more responsive to different values, uh, different notes or tones. Liberty gets construed differently in, in, for both parties, so we can leave it out for a minute. Libertarians are probably very happy being like, oh, we get our own value. <laughs> but <laughs> it gets distributed in different ways. Yeah. So as an example, when we talk about the, the border, uh, liberals were, talk about the treatment of the migrants. That's like caring and fairness. And then conservatives are like, why are they breaking the law? It's like loyalty, authority, sanctity. So you have different people. And also, Haidt observes that a slightly bigger proportion of people are conservative and naturally respond to those values. And the psychological makeup, it actually maps to certain qualities that we have. Appetite for novelty and your disgust reflex. If you're someone who just likes to try new things and, and have new experience all the time, you're naturally more liberal. Hmm. If you have a high disgust reflex, you are naturally more conservative. Uh, if you, you know, like, think things are like unclean or germy or something along along those lines. So those are just, you know, traits that personality that you have when you're born. It, it, you know, it turns out that a very significant proportion of political beliefs are genetic in relationship. So th this is one reason why when you talk about hating certain people for certain beliefs to me it really doesn't make much sense because it's like wait I thought like one of the things I'm supposed to not do is like hate people uh, for things they don't have any control over. And if it turns out your political beliefs have a significant genetic element, then I can't hate you for your politics because, you know, you probably, you know, have like a naturally like, like high or low appetite for novelty or disgust reflex or uh, threat sensitivity is another psychological quality. If you have high threat sensitivity, you tend to be uh, more conservative. Mm -hmm. So this is all to say that um, when you have folks like Tim Urban and, and Elon, and so here's where it gets sticky, yeah. Jules, okay. is that, um, uh, so if you buy this, that you have, uh, you, that humans are innately tribal and that uh, certain people respond to certain values more naturally than others. What I've concluded, rightly or wrongly, is that there is like a tribe of people who are naturally less tribal. Yeah. Uh, and they tend to traffic highly on ideas and respond to logic and reason or what we perceive to be logic and reason. A stat you put out a lot is like, of course, right now, 62% of people believe the duopoly isn't working for Americans. Nope. And it feels like the perfect decade for to act on this but how do we make the messaging compelling knowing human nature and knowing the tribalism aspect of there needs to be some tension um in terms of like really to cause an uprising and make this happen how do you think the effective messaging should be though yeah so so that this is something that uh we're going to be spending a lot of time on yeah. in the, the next number of days even yes um to s center on a message that is comprehensible and catchy yep and someone will just like click and be like okay i know what what, what these folks are about easy mm -hmm. and I, i'm into it i'm excited about it so that's a particular challenge if you're tr going to try and do something that's big tent third party which is what we're trying to build here there's a trap associated with where with what we're trying to build right now which is called the mushy middle Mm. Is that <laughs> interesting? Interesting term, <laughs> mushy middle. Yeah, is is that uh, like this side's for this and that side's for that? And it's like, wherefore getting along? Yeah, yeah. You know, wherefore 
logic and reason, compromise, mm -hmm. fact-based governance. Yeah, even if it's not getting along, because sometimes that messaging isn't, com like, it is compelling for a lot, but it is more so, yeah, like, we are for logic and reason. Like, let's move away from this, because it is not that. Yeah, we're for yeah. getting stuff done. And by the way, yeah. the system's not going to get anything done. Well, the Ford Party launched with a particular set of principles, mm -hmm. um, and we're going to be re-examining the messaging around them over the next number of days uh, to awesome. try and see if we can strike the right chord. So one possibility example would be like, you know, get corporate money out of politics yep. um, because people instinctively sense that both major parties are kind of in the pocket of various companies. Uh, so that that has like a concrete dimension and it's like, OK, I, I, I kind of know what these folks are about. So that's one possibility. There are others. You talked about this actually in your most recent podcast interview, and I found it fascinating the way. So everything is becoming globalized now. Everything's becoming universal. And I feel like by the end of this decade, we're going to look at this um, U.S.-centric fighting power between people as just like child's play. Like, why did we waste so much time on that when there are much broader issues that we have to get into and they are worldwide, not just within a country? We need to focus like on our humanity and worldwide collaboration. And can you explain why this is? I want people to watch that episode because I found it very important. Yeah, so I interviewed Ian Bremmer about his new book, The Power of Crisis, uh, and he's centered on three things that are massive issues facing the entire human race. Yep. Um, so the first is future pandemics, makes sense. The second is climate change, obvious. Yep. And the third one, less obvious to, to folks, is disruptive tech, including AI. And he had a very specific example that I think is what caught your attention, which is that as soon as a country announces that it has cracked quantum computing, then it renders uh, every other country's uh, attempts to safeguard their information obsolete. And so you could crash anyone's financial system. You could do whatever you want if you have quantum computing before anyone else. And so as soon as someone says, hey, I have quantum computing, uh, then another country might say, oh, I guess I have to nuke you because mm -hmm. you can essentially nuke me anytime you want now that you can crack every code I have. Right now, quantum computing is being developed in secret in various labs. And what he'd want us to do is have some kind of... Uh, global agreement where it's like look we're all working on quantum computing whoever gets there yep like you know let, let's agree that we're not going to use it to try to take over the world and that's real now you know like china certainly is uh investing billions probably tens of billions on ai and, and this sort of effort so that was one thing that he described he also described the fact that we have criminal actors or rogue states or terrorist uh, organizations who will have access to weaponized AI uh, and some cyber warfare tools that will potentially introduce uh, like completely different vulnerabilities uh, into systems where if you have countries, you worry about another big country, it's like actually all you need is like a, a group of crazy people in this AI that can disrupt your infrastructure. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously some pretty dark stuff that Ian is yeah. projecting. It's all perfectly sensible, though. Uh, and so he's, he wants us to get ahead of it by uh, encouraging global cooperation on something like a World Data Organization, which if you were really eagle-eyed Yang Gang, like you remember, I actually uh, said that in one of the debates. Um, and I said that because Ian suggested to me. <laughs> so, so <laughs> shout, out like, Ian. Yeah, shout out Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Because <laughs> your messaging around UBI and I first came across your videos, I believe it was like early 2019, right before you had been on Rogan. A lot of the messaging was targeted towards jobs like manufacturing jobs, truck drivers, cashiers, one jobs that a lot of Americans have, the vast majority of them do. What I found interesting, so as a reminder, people, I like create a lot of content um, online around tech and digital culture. Because of this, I've been getting like outreach from a lot of companies that have artificial intelligence as their foundation within their products. And a lot of these are creative products, you know, and I, and I knew AI was getting in, you know, more creative jobs, but it's actually like wowed me. So whether it's copywriting of just putting in a few words that I want a piece of writing to be about. And it feeding me back a two-page essay oh, fully uh, about it. I'm like, The wow. new natural language AI engine is indistinguishable from a human writer. Faster, more powerful. It's crazy. You can have a text conversation with them and swear it's a human being. And it's just going to get better. And there's definitely uses to this creative tech. You know, copywriting is very tedious. I experienced that in my everyday life. It's super helpful in terms of saving time. 
um, when you're kind of conceptualizing an idea, I'm not a super artistic person when it comes to drawing. So whether it's like maybe an idea I have for, yeah, like a creative purpose and I can type some words in and it can feed that back to me. Like that's super, yeah, powerful, that's super sure. powerful. So like to think of it all as doom and gloom, I'm like definitely trying not to, cause there are, it's definitely time savers, but thinking of how a relationship is going to move forward with it. And especially with work and like, I, as I've gotten more into the workforce and yeah, I've realized the importance of still having set meetings within certain times every week to help me just stay on track of all these different things, like how our relationship is going to change with this stuff. Well, this is one of the things they talk about in the war on normal people, um, where, where it's like we're all now competing against machines in various ways, and we've internalized the market logic. Even what you just described, it's like, I'm yeah. going to keep myself on track. I'm going to like make sure that yeah, I'm yeah, you know, yeah. so, which I'm, <laughs> That is I, true. Which I'm, I'm for on a human level. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I'm, I'm, uh, like I, you know, I want to kick ass as much as the next person. But uh, you have to realize it's like, look, we're going to lose this particular race, and so yeah. like we have to get with a program and figure out what like the new world's going to look like. I mean, there's no time to waste, uh, but it, it does hinge upon us restoring a functioning uh, political system. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's one of the things that's been you know it's been interesting for me. So like I ran for president, had this very very significant, and I, I actually read the War on Normal People myself. Love that. Like, uh, you know, reread it. And the problem is freaking real. And like, you know, it's like I, I, mean, I don't know if people read the book and think like, oh, this is alarmist or whatnot. But I mean, like half the stuff's unfolding in front of us. Um, and, and then now I'm, I, I feel like, OK, like now I need to try and restore the political process to a point where we can actually get something done. And I do see a path there. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really pumped about it. Um, but it, it, it does make it seem like the problems that I set out to solve, it's like, look, I'm going to put you aside for a minute because I can't solve you until mm -hmm. I solve this other problem. So let me solve this other problem <laughs> then I'll return to like the, uh, the, these huge problems that by the way are getting worse. And one of them is that the way tech, so, you know, I live in New York city and I, I remember ad agencies and the ad, these ad agencies have gotten completely like upended by tech now because yeah. it's like, you know, I don't need you, you to, produce copy because you can just produce 100 ads and then whichever one performs best elevate that so like you're out of the way and then <laughs> like this you know and these creative fields that are all just going to get usurped by tech over time mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's already happening so getting it we were just talking about how we need very um simplistic concise messaging that people really understand easily and the independent political movement is deeply important to me. And I want people to fully understand what Ford represents because of this. Because during the presidential election, you were strongly tied to UBI. And that was an easy mind connection for people. Like Andrew Yang, UBI, you know, they learned the basics of UBI as well. But I, I would love to go through, like, the six core principles of the Ford Party. And you just give, like, a quick one to two sentence explanation of each. Because I think that will be really just like key messaging for people to have right now. Sure. Be, Let's be do very, it. Very happy to. So I know. <laughs> big picture, I think if, if I were to describe the, the forward party uh, in one word, it's uh, unbought. I mean, right now, like we are truly like the scrappy underdogs and people are like, oh, like, you know, um, like, what are you going to do when like the, the companies want to give you money? It's like no sane company wants to give us money because we don't control a damn thing. You know, <laughs> you know they're just going to pump billions of dollars at the, yeah. the, the, the other guys. So yeah. where are the, the genuine people powered uh, political revolution that a lot of people know is necessary and that mm -hmm. we want to deliver from outside the system to go in and change the system? So a summary would be unbought. But the principles you're describing, universal basic income. Uh, Fact-based governance, which is like, look, we just need to figure out what the baselines are and then try and drive towards them. And I, I've become yes. very excited about uh, effective altruism, which is essentially like the same thing philanthropically. Mm -hmm. It's like, look, let's try and figure out what's going to make a difference and drive results. Um, so looking for a government that revolves uh, around measurements, yep. truly, like you have to agree on a, a baseline. Human-centered economy, which is like we should be the point of the economy. And like right now you see it where financial measurements will continue getting better while while we don't <laughs> so so we could and change I have, that up. And I have one question about that. So we're three three of six principles in. When it comes to hu human centered economy on the website, I think it's stated as like human centered capitalism. What do you say to people who kind of refute of like those two can't live together in terms of being a capitalistic society being human centered? How do you feel about that? Um uh, you know it's nomenclature. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I I think if you want uh, to have our health and mental health and our kids' success rate be 
uh, an important measurement for society. It doesn't matter, in my mind, if you want to call it human-centered economy or human-centered capitalism. I agree. <laughs> uh, yeah. Grace and tolerance, which is like, look, we can uh, disagree on various things and, you know, it's okay, um, which I'm going to suggest is kind of an important thing nowadays. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no arguing. Um, modern and effective government. So much right now is just like stuff doesn't not working well. I mean, we can't find baby formula in like the richest country in the history of the world. Like, does that make any sense to anybody? You know, it's like, let's, and, and right now, like, neither party really is responsible for trying to make things work better. They're just like, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Vote for the other side. And, and, you know, it is true. Like, you know, at this point, one, one party seems almost anti-government. Um, but, but the, the Democratic Party often seems more intent on messaging than on performance. You know, I think there are a lot of independents and Republicans who are like, look, if we're going to spend the money, we should try and spend it on stuff that works. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, and then bring home, what's number six? Number six, ranked choice voting in open primaries. Oh my gosh, yes. I freaking buried yeah, the lead. <laughs> you buried the top. Buried the lead, <laughs> look at that. So uh, open primaries and ranked choice voting so that anyone can compete, anyone can run. You can vote for people of any party Yep. Uh, to, to make it so that you have a truly dynamic multi-party system. Uh, I think that we're in for an historic realignment really quickly because people are so fed up if it really does end up being trump versus biden which by the way i think it will I think trump declares in october so he can take credit for the midterms how boring and then early next year joe biden says i will stand to run against trump because he sees it as his god-given mission to defeat trump uh and then 58 percent of americans would be like i cannot believe we're running these two dudes again who are four years older this cannot be the two <laughs> best choices in a country of 330 million please someone give me anyone else uh, and then the forward party will be there being like, interesting, you want, you want another choice? Like maybe we can, um, help, uh, drum up some candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I think this stuff's going to be relevant and have a ton of wind at its back, uh, pretty freaking quick. hundred percent. And then a question I have for, um, an effective and modern government, you made this point, I think you, when you were on like the H3 podcast, maybe like two years ago, how exactly like how many decades it's estimated that the government is behind on like how they utilize tech? Do you, what was that number? I, f I just oh, remember we're, I was we're, like, we're 26 years out of date um, because we got rid of the Office of Technology Assessment in the mid 90s. Uh, and so this, <laughs> I know, wow. really good timing, right? Uh, it was to save money, good times in the U.S. Like, yeah, that, that, that 83 now million. Now we have to save humanity. Real... Yeah, <laughs> seriously. That's so dumb. So, but, but that, that's, again, a, an example of the fact that government doesn't need to perform well mm -hmm. in a two-party system for people to hold on to power. No, I mean, if, if we did everything right, this would still be a very, very difficult time. But if we don't come together meaningfully, it's going to be uh, disastrous on a scale that I think most people are just now waking up to. So as a reminder and ending with this, the six core principles of the forward party, the OG, universal basic income, human-centered economy, ranked choice voting in open primaries, an effective and modern government, fact-based governance, grace and tolerance. Love it all. I think it's important to share. I, I will say that we're probably going to be messaging them in some snappier way. Yes. Uh, because the, these six core principles, I think, appeal to the logical among us. And we're going to try and get a couple of the illogical people on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> okay. Love it. All right. Thanks, Andrew. I love this conversation. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Jules. You rock. <laughs>